Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and along with Nachi Gupta, we'll be taking you through the final issue of the year, the December 2017 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, managing dislocations of the hip, knee, and ankle in the emergency department. This month's issue was authored by a strong team from San Diego, Dr. Kayleen Arnold, Dr. Zane Feos, and Dr. Dylan Arnold from the Naval Medical Center, as well as Dr. David Bruner from Scripps Mercy Hospital. It was also edited by Dr. Melissa Lieber of Mount Sinai and Dr. Christopher Tainter of UCSD. Although we're going to cover all the material in this month's issue, from the most common hip dislocations to the more rare but potentially dangerous knee dislocations, we're going to deviate a bit from the norm and not follow the template of the article as precisely as we have in the past. For ease of listening, we're going to take you through this joint by joint, fully covering each joint from etiology to management and disposition. And don't forget to listen for the which, as always, indicates an answer to one of the 10 CME questions is coming up. This month's recommendations are based on over 500 articles, 163 on hip dislocations, 187 on knee dislocations, and 167 on ankle dislocations. In addition, eight articles from the Cochrane database were reviewed. Interestingly, there are no existing ASAP guidelines on this topic. Keep in mind that most of the literature they review are case reports, case series, and retrospective studies. There are, in fact, no large RCTs on the topic. So let's start at the obvious place, where all injuries occur, out in the field, with pre-hospital management. We'll group all pre-hospital management together before breaking it down joint by joint. Pre-hospital care should begin with stabilizing the injured extremity and providing adequate pain control if available. If there is suspicion for dislocation with neurovascular compromise, an attempt at immediate reduction should be considered. If the extremity is well perfused with good pulses, you can move on to mobilization. Hip dislocations without fracture can be immobilized without splinting. If there's an obvious deformity, a traction splint should be placed, however with caution to avoid worsening concomitant injuries. And don't forget about C-spine immobilization as well, if there's any concern for a high spinal injury, as these lower extremity injuries can be quite painful and therefore distracting. For knee reductions, as long as the patient is neurovascularly intact, immobilize the patient as is, in the position that they were found, without attempting reduction. If there is evidence of neurovascular compromise, such as a pulse deficit, EMS should involve medical control to determine whether pre-hospital providers should consider immediate reduction versus expedited transport. And especially with knee dislocations, which often spontaneously reduce, don't forget to communicate this to the ED treating team, as it can be critical to determining underlying injuries. All right, let's dive into the meat of this issue and start with the most common lower extremity dislocation the hip dislocation. The femoral head and acetabulum make up the ball and socket hip joint. It's supported by the cartilaginous labrum, the ligamentous hip capsule, the ligamentum teres, as well as the huge muscle groups of the lower extremity. Native dislocations are rare and usually result from high-energy traumatic mechanisms. Interestingly, over two-thirds of traumatic hip dislocations occur in motor vehicle accident victims who are not wearing seatbelts. Hip dislocations are classified as either simple, which are isolated dislocations without an associated fracture, or complex, which are dislocations with an associated fracture. Not surprisingly, since native hip dislocations require incredibly high energy, 90% are associated with a fracture, with acetabular fractures occurring in 70% of cases. Hip dislocations are further divided as either anterior or posterior, which refers to the direction of the femoral head relative to the acetabulum. Posterior dislocations make up 90% of traumatic hip dislocations. Obviously, the other 10% must be anterior then. These are further divided into superior and inferior dislocations, with inferior occurring roughly 90% of the time. With anterior, inferior, and hip dislocations, be on the lookout for an indentation fracture, which is a fracture caused by the femoral head pushing past the obturator. 
As with all orthopedic injuries, it's also important to keep the neurovascular structures in mind to predict and understand complications. Figure 1 of this issue shows the posterior sciatic nerve as well as the medial femoral nerve, artery, and vein. The femoral artery supplies blood to the femoral head via an extracapsular ring. We'll return to this in a few minutes when we discuss complications. When a patient arrives in the ED with traumatic hip pain, the differential is fairly straightforward and consists mostly of hip and pelvic fractures in addition to their associated neurovascular injuries. Check out Table 1 for a comprehensive list. Since 95% of traumatic hip dislocations will have significant associated injury, and the vast majority will arrive as trauma patients, all patients should be evaluated according to the standard ATLS guidelines. As part of your initial evaluation, don't forget to check for a sciatic nerve injury, which can occur in about 14% of posterior hip dislocations. Do this by testing sensation along the posterior leg, as well as testing the ability to dorsiflex and by testing ankle reflexes. Similarly, those with femoral nerve injuries may have loss of sensation over their thigh, as well as weakness of the quadriceps and loss of knee reflexes. After you've completed your exam, you guessed it, x-rays will be your go-to imaging modality. In accordance with ATLS guidelines, the initial bedside AP pelvic x-ray will likely be your first study. In most cases, this single view will be adequate for diagnosis of a hip dislocation. Look specifically for Shenton's line, which is a curved line created by the inferior border of the superior pubic ramus and the neck of the femur. Shenton's line should be smooth and continuous. If not, there's likely to be a dislocation or a fracture. And if the AP film is indeterminate, a lateral film can seal the diagnosis. Jude views, which are internal and external oblique views, can be added to completely evaluate the acetabulum, which if you recall is fractured in about 70% of posterior dislocations. It's important to remember that if there's a posterior acetabular fracture, a CT is a must. Any fracture of more than 40% of the acetabular rim is technically an unstable fracture and requires open reduction and internal fixation. Next up, treatment. All complex hip dislocations require emergent orthopedic consultation. Additionally, irreducible dislocations, non-concentric reductions, and neurovascular deficits despite reduction will all require surgical management in the form of either minimally invasive hip arthroscopy or open arthrotomy. Simple dislocations, on the other hand, can and should be reduced by the ED physician. There is decent evidence to suggest that reduction should be performed within six hours to decrease the risk of avascular necrosis. Additionally, no more than three attempts at reduction should be made to similarly limit the risk of avascular necrosis. And if you work in a shop without a true trauma service, evidence suggests that the emergency physician should attempt to reduce the hip prior to transfer. Those who were transferred in a dislocated state had a four-fold increased risk of severe sciatic nerve injury as compared to those who were transferred after reduction. That's 16% versus 4% of the time. That's a great tip. Before beginning reduction, remember to consider pain control and muscle relaxation. Consider an ultrasound-guided fascia iliaca compartment block to reduce your use of systemic analgesics. Recently, multiple case reports have shown that an ultrasound-guided fascia iliaca compartment block may improve both patient comfort and increase the likelihood of successful reduction. In addition, it can reduce the need for procedural sedation and analgesia, which comes with its own inherent risks. Definitely something to keep your eye out for in the future as it becomes more common. In many cases, though, procedural sedation and analgesia may still be needed to achieve adequate pain control and muscle relaxation. All right, let's move on to the actual reduction techniques. The two most common methods are the Alice method and the Bigelow method. Although we'll describe them, make sure to look at the figures in the issue. To perform the Alice method, have an assistant apply downward pressure on the anterior superior iliac spines then standing on the stretcher, provide upward inline traction of the femur, which you should hold in 90 degrees of flexion, adduct, and internally and externally rotate it until it reduces. 
In the Bigelow method, again, have an assistant stabilize the pelvis. Then lock the patient's popliteal fossa in your antecubital fossa and externally rotate and extend the knee while the femur is distracted. Although widely described and utilized, both of these methods require the clinician to stand on the patient's stretcher to get an appropriate position. For this reason, three newer techniques have been described, the Captain Morgan technique, the rocket launcher technique, and the East Baltimore lift. To perform the Captain Morgan technique, flex the patient's hip to 90 degrees while an assistant pushes down on their iliac spines. Place one foot on the stretcher with your knee behind the patient's knee. Apply downward force on the patient's ankle like a fulcrum. While you lift the patient's knee upwards, have the assistant gently rock the patient's hips, causing rotation to facilitate the reduction. For the rocket launcher technique, have an assistant apply downward pressure on each anterior superior iliac spine, then stand on the side of the affected leg facing the patient's feet and flex the affected hip to 90 degrees. Next, place the patient's knee over your shoulder with your inside hand on the patient's knee and your outside hand on the ankle. Assume a squatted position and lean toward the patient while pulling the ankle laterally to adduct and internally rotate the femur. Stand from a squatted position to provide upward traction. Once reduced to length, externally rotate and abduct the affected hip to reduce the deformity. The last technique is the East Baltimore lift. To start, stand on the side of the stretcher of the affected hip. An assistant stands on the other side. Placing your arms across the stretcher, put your inside hands on each other's shoulders. With your free, outside hand, stabilize the iliac crest as above. Place the patient's flexed knee onto your joint arms. A third assistant applies downward leverage on the ankle with you and the first assistant applying upward force. Applying adduction, abduction, internal and external rotation may aid in reduction as well. Definitely check out the figures to really hammer these techniques home. Although I'm sure you appreciated our attempted explanations, it's hard to really do these techniques justice without a picture or even a video. When choosing which method to perform, unfortunately no evidence exists to definitively recommend one technique over another. Consider your own limitations, availability of supporting staff, and your comfort level with the procedure itself. Once the hip has been successfully reduced, it should be immobilized in extension and external rotation with slight abduction. Use an abduction pillow to help hold this position. If one isn't available, a knee immobilizer can also be used to help prevent inadvertent flexion of the hip. And as with most orthopedic procedures, radiographs are essential to confirm reduction. X-rays are sufficient in straightforward cases, but a CT will almost always be needed for concern of an incomplete reduction, occult fracture, and intraarticular loose bodies. While early passive range of motion and rehab is recommended, patients should remain non-weight-bearing until they're seen by an orthopedist. Post-reduction, prognosis depends on a number of factors. Factors that lead to a worse prognosis include increased time to reduction, posterior dislocation, cartilaginous injury to the femoral head, acetabular fracture, associated polytrauma, and pre-existing comorbidities. As for time to reduction, this is crucial for restoring blood flow to the femoral head. If not restored promptly, the patient is at risk for both avascular necrosis and post-traumatic arthritis. One 2016 study found that avascular necrosis was 5.6 times more likely in dislocations reduced after 12 hours as compared to those reduced in less than 6 hours. That's a pretty significant difference. Before moving on to the next joint, let's take a quick detour to discuss dislocation of the non-native hip. Dislocation after total hip arthroplasty is actually fairly common, with roughly 2% of patients dislocating at one point or another. Unlike native dislocations, which are usually associated with significant trauma, dislocation after THA is often the result of minimal force, like bending over to pick something up off the floor. 60% occur in the first three months after surgery, and 77% occur within the first year. 
In terms of specific reduction techniques, you can use all the same techniques we just described. Of note, however, there's much less urgency as the femoral head has already been replaced and there's no risk of avascular necrosis. That's not to say you shouldn't act quickly though. Hip dislocations can be quite painful and the sooner you replace the joint in the socket, the sooner you'll be able to provide the patient with relief. And although the reduction techniques are the same following both native and prosthetic hip dislocations, there are some subtle differences to note after successful relocation. Unlike native hips, which require abduction bracing, these are unnecessary in those with a THA. Instead, the patient can attempt to walk, and if they can, they often don't require admission and can be safely discharged. Definitely discuss the case with their orthopedist to make sure they are on board with this plan. If you are sending them home, remember to tell them to avoid sitting with their hips below the level of their knees, bending over, or crossing their legs. These can all put them at risk for another dislocation. You should also have them see their orthopedist within two weeks. Alright, so that wraps up hip dislocation, both native and prosthetic. Let's move on to the knee. Knee dislocations are a much rarer injury than hip dislocations. Like hip dislocations, MVCs are the main culprit, causing over 50% of the cases. In addition, high-impact sports also place patients at risk. The knee itself actually contains two joints, the tibiofemoral joint and the patellofemoral joint, which means there are two types of dislocations to discuss, tibiofemoral dislocations and patellofemoral dislocations. When people refer to knee dislocations, they're referring to a tibiofemoral dislocation, and that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time discussing. The tibiofemoral joint is made up of the medial and lateral condyles of both the femur and the tibia, with the medial and lateral meniscus providing cushioning between the two. The ACL and PCL prevent anterior and posterior displacement, while the MCL and LCL prevent valgus and varus deviation. Knee dislocations come in five flavors, anterior, posterior, lateral, medial, and rotational, with anterior being the most common, followed by posterior. Anterior knee dislocations typically result from extreme knee hyperextension. Extension beyond about 30 degrees causes the posterior capsule, then the ACL, and finally the PCL to tear. This leads to tibial instability and anterior displacement. In cases of extreme hyperextension beyond 50 degrees, the popliteal artery becomes at risk for injury. Posterior knee dislocations commonly result from an axial load on the tibia, usually in the setting of an MVC. With posterior dislocations, approximately half are associated with some degree of popliteal artery injury. Yikes. Medial and lateral dislocations are much more rare. On physical exam and those with the lateral dislocation, you can often see a dimple where the femoral condyle buttonhole through the joint capsule. Such dislocations often require open reduction. As we briefly mentioned, the feared complication of a knee dislocation is a popliteal artery injury. Popliteal artery injuries occur in 44% of posterior dislocations, 39% of anterior dislocations, 25% of medial dislocations, and in only 6% of lateral dislocations. Patients are also at risk for nerve injury, with the common perineal nerve being the most frequently damaged and with some literature citing the incidence as high as 50%. Tibial nerve injury has been reported, but only sporadically. Alright, enough background, let's get on to the evaluation and treatment. When considering acute traumatic knee pain, the differential is fairly straightforward. In addition to a dislocation, the differential includes ligamentous injuries, fractures, perineal and tibial nerve injuries, as well as popliteal artery injury. When you, as an ED physician, suspect a knee dislocation, both orthopedic and vascular surgery should be consulted. Note that I said suspect a knee dislocation. Unlike hip and ankle dislocations, which dislocate and usually arrive in non-anatomic alignment, Knee dislocations often occur and then spontaneously reduce. This is why a careful history is a must. Exactly. So once you suspect it, you need to assess the popliteal artery. The first step in the evaluation is a simple pulse exam, both the DP and the PT. 
Unfortunately, this isn't sufficient as a 2002 meta-analysis found that abnormal pulses were only 79% specific for a popliteal artery injury requiring surgical intervention. The next step in the popliteal artery evaluation is an ankle brachial index, or ABI. An ABI of less than 0.9 is 95-100% to 100% sensitive and 80-100% to 100% specific for arterial injuries requiring operative management. Another study found that an ABI of greater than 0.9 had a 100% negative predictive value for surgical popliteal injuries. In terms of the nerve exam, motor function should be evaluated by testing dorsiflexion, foot aversion, and toe extension. Sensory function should be tested by assessing sensation over the dorsum of the foot to the first web space. The last exam to discuss is actually just repeating the exams we just mentioned over time to assess for compartment syndrome. Sensory deficits in compartment syndrome will likely appear progressively and circumferentially rather than in a dermatomal distribution. Compartment pressures may also help differentiate direct nerve injury from compartment syndrome. Any loss of pulses should be assumed to be from a popliteal artery injury until proven otherwise. After the physical exam comes the imaging. AP and lateral radiographs should be performed initially and after reduction. If there is obvious dislocation with vascular compromise, immediate reduction should take precedence over imaging. Popliteal artery injury can also be evaluated by CT angiography or conventional angiography. CT angiography, however, allows both vascular and osseous evaluation, whereas conventional angiography allows only vascular evaluation. Duplex ultrasound may also have a growing role here. This issue also raises the question of who needs emergent CT angiography. Brace yourself, it's not everyone. Certainly, if there are hard signs of ischemia, the patient should go for immediate surgical exploration and repair. Additionally, if at any point before reduction the patient had abnormal pulses, angiography is a must. However, if the patient has normal distal pulses, a well-perfused limb, and an ABI greater than 0.9, observation for 24 hours of vascular checks is an appropriate alternative. Lastly, MR angiography is another reasonable alternative, as it shows osseous, vascular, and ligamentous injuries. However, MRI is costly and time-consuming and can inappropriately delay management. All right, on to treatment. As we previously mentioned, any confirmed or suspected knee dislocation requires an emergent ortho and or vascular consult. This is necessary as studies have shown that popliteal artery injuries secondary to dislocation result in an 11% amputation rate if repair is done in the first eight hours after the injury versus an 86% amputation rate if the repair is delayed beyond eight hours. And to reiterate for emphasis, if there is evidence of vascular compromise on exam, immediate closed reduction should be attempted. Knee reductions are typically a three-person procedure. One person applies steady inline traction on the distal tibia. Another person applies inline counter traction on the distal femur. Then, lastly, the third person should grasp the proximal tibia and apply force in the opposite direction of the dislocation. After successful reduction, the knee should be immobilized in 20 degrees of flexion to prevent subluxation. Definitive management will be left to the orthopedist. Just as an FYI, surgical intervention has been associated with better long-term subjective symptoms and improved outcomes. However, there were no long-term differences in athletic ability and no difference in pre-injury employment. The potential for significant disability was also equivalent with both operative and non-operative management. In terms of disposition, this will be determined in conjunction with the orthopedic surgeons and the vascular surgeons. With a low suspicion of dislocation and unremarkable vascular imaging, the patient may be safely discharged. In those with a confirmed dislocation but no clear arterial injury, patients may undergo angiography or be admitted for serial exams. All arterial injuries will need to be admitted. 
And just to drive this home, a popliteal injury is a devastating injury. One 2005 study found an amputation rate as high as 26% with increasing delays in diagnosis causing an increased need for amputation. In terms of dislocation following a knee replacement, unlike prosthetic hips, this is a relatively rare phenomenon. Given the rarity and complexity of such dislocations, orthopedic consultation should be considered early. And let's briefly discuss patellar dislocations before moving further down the leg to the ankle. These are managed much more simply than the other pathologies we've discussed today. First off, risk factors for patellar dislocation include female gender, adolescence, vastus medialis atrophy, obesity, genovalgus, flat intracondylar groove, and a large quadriceps angle. Most patellar dislocations occur laterally as a result of trauma. Medial, superior, horizontal, and intracondylar dislocations are less common. Most reduce spontaneously prior to ED evaluation. If the patient arrives, likely dislocated, as long as they can tolerate it, obtaining knee films before reduction is recommended. And in terms of the actual reduction, the amount of analgesia and sedation will vary from none to simple anxiolysis to procedural sedation and analgesia. To reduce a patellar dislocation, mildly flex the quadriceps and then slowly extend the knee. Often the patella will reduce at this stage. If not, apply gentle pressure to the patella, which is usually sufficient. It's important to note that this technique is appropriate for the standard lateral dislocation. For the less common dislocations and dislocations with an associated fracture, definitely consult orthopedics. After reduction and post-reduction radiographs, immobilize the patient in extension. They should be given crutches and be kept non-weight-bearing for a week until they follow up with their orthopedist. After that, the patients will likely remain partial weight-bearing for several more weeks, but that decision can be deferred to their orthopedist. I think that's it for the knee. Let's move on down to our last joint, the ankle, or the tibiotalar joint. Unlike hip and knee dislocations, which are usually closed, nearly half of all ankle dislocations are open. Additionally, the majority involve an associated fracture. Anatomically, the ankle joint is comprised of the dome-shaped talus with the superior and medial tibia and the lateral fibula, the anterior talofibular ligament, posterior talofibular ligament, and calcaneofibular ligament provide ligamentous support, while the dorsalis pedis, posterior tibial, and peroneal artery provide the blood supply. Over 80% of ankle dislocations occur from either a fall from height, motor vehicle collision, or sports. As such, young adult men and those with a history of multiple sprains or fractures are at greatest risk for dislocation. Ankle dislocations are described by the direction that the talus moves in relation to the tibia. They are either medial, posterior, posteromedial, anterior, superior, or lateral. The differential for traumatic ankle pain includes sprains, fractures, fracture dislocations, and isolated dislocations. Don't forget about total talar and subtalar dislocations as well. Although occurring in only 2% of ankle dislocations, if you attempt reduction of a total talar or subtalar dislocation without imaging, you may actually worsen the dislocation. Let's move on to the evaluation. The history, specifically the mechanism, should help accurately predict the patient's injury pattern. Once at the bedside, a comprehensive vascular exam should be performed before and after reduction, assessing the DP and PT pulses as well as the distal capillary refill. As with all dislocations, lack of a pulse warrants emergent reduction. Following the history and physical, you should obtain AP, lateral, and mortis or oblique x-rays. CT also has a role, but more so in the post-reduction phase, as it helps with the operative planning and to evaluate for occult fractures. Most ankle reductions involve significant analgesia or procedural sedation and analgesia. Once the patient is comfortable, have one person hold the patient's knee flexed at 90 degrees. This reduces Achilles tendon tension. With the patient's knee flexed, you should hold the patient's foot in a plantar flexed position. Apply axial traction to the talus to move it into anatomic position. 
Often axial traction must be maintained for a period of time to cause muscle fatigue before the final move into anatomic position is feasible. Closed reduction can be attempted two or three times, but if these attempts fail, open reduction may be required in the OR to limit damage to the tailor cartilage. Open dislocations are a totally different beast. If there is vascular compromise, open reductions warrant reduction in the ED along with emergent orthoconsult. Following reduction, the patient should be taken to the operating room for washout. As always, after reduction, remember to repeat a complete neurovascular exam. The patient's ankle should be immobilized in 90 degrees of flexion in a long leg posterior splint with a sugar tong splint in addition for maximal stability. This method of immobilization also allows for substantial swelling, which can be expected after such trauma. Open or closed, all ankle dislocations should have an orthoconsult because of the unstable nature of these dislocations. If the joint is stable and the patient is reliable and their pain is controlled, they may be safely and appropriately discharged home as long as they remain non-weight-bearing and follow up with ortho expediently. It's also worth briefly mentioning a few complications from ankle dislocations. Vascular compromise can lead to ischemic or soft tissue necrosis and potentially gangrene. In addition, decreased blood flow can lead to talar avascular necrosis. Unfortunately, osteoarthritis is common after both open and closed reductions as well. Since we've been through a bunch of different pathologies today, let's summarize the key take-home points. 90% of hip dislocations are posterior, while only 10% are anterior. Typically, an AP pelvic radiograph is adequate to diagnose a hip dislocation. Judae views are helpful in diagnosing associated fractures as well. Traumatic dislocations of the native hip should be reduced within 6 hours to reduce the risk of avascular necrosis and post-traumatic arthritis. The Alice, Bigelow, Captain Morgan, Rocket Launcher, and East Baltimore lift techniques can all be used to reduce a hip dislocation. None have been proven to be superior to the others. All can be used on both native and prosthetic hips. Consider an ultrasound-guided fascia iliaca compartment block to augment and reduce the amount of needed procedural sedation and analgesia. All hip fracture dislocations should be deferred to orthopedic surgery. After reduction of a native hip dislocation, a CT scan should be obtained and the patient should typically be admitted to the hospital. Uncomplicated reduction of prosthetic hips may be discharged in conjunction with speaking to their orthopedists. Many knee dislocations spontaneously reduce. Maintain a low threshold of suspicion for this injury. Missing a knee dislocation could have catastrophic consequences. In any knee dislocation with a pulse deficit, perform immediate reduction without imaging. Delays longer than 8 hours have a higher incidence of amputation. After a successful knee reduction, serial vascular exams or CT angiography or conventional angiography should be performed. Ankle dislocations can be associated with significant neurovascular, skin, and soft tissue complications. Ankle dislocations require immediate recognition and prompt reduction. Emergent orthopedic consultation and post-reduction CT are necessary after reduction of a dislocated ankle. So that wraps up the December 2017 episode of Amplify. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow the EB Medicine Twitter handle at EB Medicine for updates and frequent evidence-based emergency medicine pearls. Before you forget, head over to www.ebmedicine.net slash E1217 to earn your much-deserved CME credit. It should only take a minute or two to breeze through the 10 questions. And for all of our resident listeners out there who don't need CME, did you know that EB Medicine offers free access to emergency medicine practice? Head over to www.ebmedicine.net slash residents to get started today. We'll talk to you guys in 2018.